0: Hello, Duke fans, and welcome to episode three hundred six of the Duke Basketball Report podcast. It is Wednesday, April fourteenth, two thousand twenty-one. It's my mom's birthday, so happy birthday to my mom. I am happy Sam. Birthday, Klein. Mama I am, Klein. Yeah, that's right. That's right. She's great and, and deserves the birthday shout out. And it was and it was my grandmother's birthday yesterday. So it's a it's a big week in the family for birthdays.
1: Wait, wait, wait. So uh, uh, your your grandmother, who's your mom's mother or your yes. father's mother? Yes,
0: my grandmother, who's so my you, mom's mother.
1: So your so your mom's mother had your mom the day after her own birthday that is correct that's serendipity that was it it was was
0: probably probably your toughest birthday so uh with with that i am sam klein i am your host for this episode i am coming to you as i usually do from boston i'm joined as always by donald wine and jason
2: evans donald is at home in washington donald how are you sir i'm doing great i had a nice much needed vacation to maine and new hampshire um You know, very relaxing, Uh, got to eat some lobster, uh, got to do some hikes, which was great. So I am feeling refreshed this week. Excellent. Excellent. And Jason Evans is also here from Atlanta.
1: Hey, I have been hard, hard, hard at work on editing Return to Glory Episode 3, which is about the game against Maryland in 2001, the Miracle Minute game. And, uh, it's been a, a ton of work and a ton of fun. And I can't wait to get that out to folks later this week.
0: Well, the, the first two episodes have been excellent. And, and we hope that, that people are tuning in to those. Obviously you can find them in your podcast feed, same place you, you find these episodes. So, so enjoy those episodes from Jason. We are going to get very shortly to an interview that we just conducted with a uh, member of the Duke family who isn't necessarily a, a basketball alum but uh, David Rubenstein was the chair of the board at, at Duke for for four or five years. He has been a, a major donor to Duke and to a number of other causes, and we have a great conversation with him coming up. But before we get there, I know that there are a couple rumors to address this week. There's no hard news. We don't know yet what Matthew Hurt is doing. We don't know if anybody is is officially joining or, or leaving the Duke basketball team, and 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 there's no other sort of specific things to talk about but Jason can you catch us up on the latest rumors regarding the basketball roster for next
1: year sure I guess the first thing is uh we spoke on the last podcast about Noah Gurley a, a transfer from Furman who was looking at Duke um uh just a, a day or two before Gurley announced his decision he ended up picking Alabama um he announced that he was eliminating Duke from from consideration there's some speculation out there that's he may have done that because he was unsure what Matthew Hurt would do. Noah Gurley does not make sense on a Duke roster if Matthew Hurt returns to Duke. They are fairly similar kind of players. Hurt Hurt's a better prospect. Hurt's a better player than Noah Gurley. Um, little question about that, but Noah Gurley is a stretch four, much like Matthew Hurt is. So there's some talk out there that, Gurley may have eliminated Duke because of some degree of uncertainty about what Matthew Hurt's decision would be. A lot of people just assumed that Matthew Hurt was going to turn pro. There, there are more and more rumors that Matthew Hurt is really undecided what to do and that, um, that there's uh, an increasing possibility that he may come back to to Durham for one more season. I don't know. I'm, not, you know. I'm not here to say that any of my sources are saying this or anything like that. In fact, I sort of think that Hurt hasn't made up his mind yet, that he is truly torn. But so while that's going on with the big men, there have been developments with the guards. Um, A lot of people have identified looking at next year's roster that Duke probably needs another ball hamper. And and it appears that Duke has zeroed in on a player named Jalen Blakes. He is a high school senior um, out of uh, Blair Academy in New Jersey. Uh, Folks, you may recognize the name Blair Academy. It's where Luol Deng went to school, um, a very prominent basketball program. Um, Jalen Blakes is not the typical kind of Duke recruit. Most Duke recruits are top 50. Most Duke recruits are top 25 basketball players. Jalen Blakes is right around the top 100. Um, and and so he's not someone who you, he's not a five-star recruit. He's like a, you know, three, four-star kind of recruit. Um, but he is a very solid point guard, uh, six, two, he's got a six, eight wingspan. He's known for playing really good defense because he's got such a good wingspan, um, Very, uh, very solid athletically. Um, This is a guy who who has a a pretty big frame and is really good at using his body to get into the lane. Um, He's a good shooter. He's not, you know, he's not Trevor Keels. He's not a lights out outside shooter. He's not DJ Stewart in terms of his outside shooting, Um, but but he's a guy who can knock down the three. Um, And the expectation is because he's a guy who, like I say, is a top 100 recruit, but not a top 25 recruit, that he's someone who potentially would be at Duke for several years. Probably all four. Um, he has not committed. Duke has not gotten Jalen Blake's yet, but that's the rumor out there, and there's a lot of talk that that could happen in a matter of hours or days. He he was looking strongly at Pitt. He was looking at UConn, um, and then Duke sort of just showed up. Uh, and and uh, there's lots of speculation that that Duke that he's enamored of Duke. This is a kid who's really into academics. He was also looking at Harvard and other Ivy League schools, and and Duke seems like a great fit for him.
2: Jason, in the limited you know, description that you just gave of Jalen Blakes, it sounds like he is a potential replacement for Jordan Goldwire in the sense that you, you have a guy that can defend, can kind
1: of drive the lane, but be a, essentially a four general type of point guard. Is that right? Yeah, I think that's a real accurate, a good, accurate way to describe him. And, and I want to temper folks' expectations Look, I don't think he's going to be as good as Jordan Goldwire would be next year. Jordan Goldwire was an all ACC defender and a guy who was playing 20 plus minutes a game for Duke and and would have continued to do that had he had he chosen to take an extra year here um, uh, in Durham. But um, I think Jalen Blakes is someone who can a lot of people say he can mature into being another Jordan Goldwire, perhaps even better. I mean, let's not forget, Jordan Goldwire was barely a top 300 recruit. Jalen Blake's is a top 100 recruit, and there's a difference in the quality of those kind of players. The expectation is that it took Goldwire a few years to be really useful at Duke. Blake's most people think could be useful and could at least pick up some spot minutes right away.
0: And of course, we'll 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 keep monitoring that. my My take on that is that it's going to be tough to get. It's going to be tough for Duke to recruit a, a really high level guy to be the sort of backup point guard on this team, because I think a lot of the minutes are probably already spoken for, but a four-star recruit who is looking forward to two or three years of college, I think is, is right in that sweet spot where Duke could bring them in. And, and like you said, sort of play the Jordan Goldwire position. Maybe if they're a little bit talented, a little bit more talented than Jordan Goldwire was coming out of high school, then there are minutes available for that guy right away, or, or at least in his sophomore year when perhaps
1: there will be a little bit more turnover. Yeah, and and I I think it's the same way at the Power Four. I think the same thing happened with Noah Gurley. If you look at Duke right now, it's pretty easy to see six, probably seven guys um, who are going to get serious playing time. So if you're a, a recruit or a transfer, a guy in the transfer portal, who wants playing time right away, it, it, it's tough to look at Duke and go, oh, that's the place I should go. It's guys like Jalen Blakes who recognize that they probably need a little bit of seasoning and they just want, you know, they want a chance to get better in practice and they want maybe occasional, you know, spot minutes when you need them, you know, five, seven, 10 minutes a game. Those are the guys that are sweet spot for Duke right now.
0: And that's a, it, it's sort of a tricky position for Duke to be recruiting in because they can't say yes, there are minutes available for you next year. It's really there are minutes available for you in two years if you work your butt off and, and are able to you know, show out during that season where you're more going to be a practice player than on the court. On the topic of, of waiting it out and, and sort of trusting the process, we have an interview coming up right now that I'm very excited to share with you. We've got, as I mentioned at the top, David Rubenstein, former chairman of the board at Duke and a, and a very successful businessman in his own right, agreed to join us here on the Duke Basketball Report podcast. So listen to the music. And when we come back, we will be talking to David Rubenstein. All right, Duke fans, today on the Duke Basketball Report podcast, we have a very special guest. He graduated from Duke in 1970 and by his own admission was a pretty awful basketball player, but he's had a fairly successful career in business. He served as Duke's chair of the board of trustees from 2013 to 2017. He's donated lots of money to Duke. His name is on a couple of buildings, including one at the public policy school, the brand new arts facility that's on central campus, and the new entrance and lobby To Cameron Indoor Stadium, which was just completed a few years ago, in his spare time from running one of the most successful private equity firms in the world, he also regularly interviews notable leaders from business, politics, and sports. So, hopefully, he has a few things to say to us. David Rubenstein, thank you for joining us on the Duke Basketball Report podcast, and uh, welcome.
3: My pleasure to be here. Thanks for inviting me.
0: Absolutely excellent. We will jump in. We're gonna we're gonna do a few different sets of questions with you. The first set of questions. Is about the basketball program and about Coach K. So I want to take it back to your time at Duke. This is in the in the late '60s. What was the basketball program like then, uh, as you recall, being a student?
3: Well, in those days, uh, it wasn't difficult to get into Cameron Indoor, which was then just called Indoor Stadium. Uh, if you wanted to go to the game, you just walked into the game. Uh, so there wasn't uh, a, a flurry of Cameron crazies, so called. Uh, the team actually had gone to the Final Four. Um, before I got there, I think in the year or two before I had gone there. They had some spectacular players in the uh, pre-integration era. Uh, Duke did not have an African-American basketball player until the time that I was there as an undergraduate. Uh, But prior to that, they had some incredible players. Art Heyman was of course the player of the year in early 1960s before I I arrived. Subsequently, uh, Jeff Mullins and Jack Marin Steve Vesendak, uh, Bob Berga was there when I was there. So they had some pretty good players. Uh, today, these players would probably be undersized uh, by the standards of today. And in those days, you also had uh, uh, freshman teams. Um, so you had uh, people couldn't play on the varsity until they were sophomores. I think Duke had a very good reputation as a basketball school in those days, but it wasn't quite what it became later on, obviously.
0: And when Coach K was hired in 1980, what was your impression of the basketball program and what was your initial impression of him?
3: Well, I would be less than honest if I said I had focused on it. In 1980, I was working at the uh, in the White House and my main focus was uh, trying to get Carter reelected. So I didn't worry about Duke basketball, honestly, as I know that's a shame to say and probably sacrilegious on this uh, podcast, but it wasn't something I focused on. Did you
0: um, did you follow the, the team? I, I know that Sorry, so, so Carter doesn't get reelected and you have to go back to private practice. Do you then get more time to to watch any basketball? Or did you did you have any impression of Coach K in those early years when he was struggling and, and I think a lot of the support was not behind him?
3: I didn't spend that much time on it, honestly, in those days. I'm a fair weather fan. When they win a lot, I then take credit for it and pretend that I'm involved. When they lose a lot, I kind of say I barely went there. So I didn't really um, obsess over it that much. Basketball today is a much greater obsession of people than it was then uh, nationwide and at Duke. So I think uh, I recognized that he had a losing record for a number of years when you added it all together. And I was surprised that he actually uh, was able to be uh, retained because, as you know, there were many people who wanted to push him out at that time.
0: So when did you first meet Coach K? I know that you became more involved in the university on a number of levels about 20 years ago, um, but his run of success kind of starts in the mid to late 80s. Obviously, the team wins a couple of championships in the early 90s. When did you first meet him and and what was your impression?
3: As a general rule of thumb, when people graduate from a university, the last thing they want to do is spend time on alumni affairs and being connected to the university. They want to get on with their life. And so I was in that category. So I didn't get reconnected to the university for several decades afterwards uh, when I had already uh, had my business career and when people at Duke were probably more interested in me when uh, I was more successful than probably when I was less successful. But um, I think I first met him when I had uh, my private equity firm, Carlisle, uh, had an annual investor conference. And in those days, I used to bring in people as speakers but I would either interview them or let them make a speech. And I think we uh, uh, went through a speakers bureau and he uh, came and he made a speech to, uh, to our investor group of about a thousand people or so. And he did a, a very good job. And then I think we did uh, one or two other events like that as well with him.
0: And you've interviewed, like I said, at the top, you've interviewed a number of leaders from politics and business, uh, some folks from the sports world, including Coach K. And I know that you've you've written a lot and, and spoken a lot about leadership qualities. What is it about Coach K you think that makes him a great leader and, and what qualities does he share with some other notable leaders that you've interacted with?
3: Well, I did publish a book uh, recently on leadership called uh, How to Lead and Coach K is in that book along with one other sports figure, Jack Nicklaus. Um, Coach K uh, obviously is a person who knows how to motivate people and knows how to get people to work together. Um, he's been uh essential in uh, Duke's success. i in my view, and I think he's become the greatest basketball coach certainly since John Wooden and maybe even better than John Wooden, because I much harder to win national championships than when John Wooden was there, because those days the relatively fewer numbers of people uh, competed in national championships. On the other hand, uh, he did have some spectacular players at UCLA. There's no doubt about it, but coach K is a person who's motivated um to make the team work well and he's not focused only on individual performance but on team performance and when he gives speeches there's no doubt that he understands the value of teamwork and i would say he's a terrific motivational speaker did you so looking forward kind of into the future there's going to be a day
0: when when coach k retires and and i think a lot of duke fans were looking at the recent unc coaching search with roy williams deciding to retire seemingly you know, within a, a week, it was basically a quick turnaround of him deciding to retire and then UNC promoting Hubert Davis to the head coaching position. Did you follow that that story at all? And do you have any thoughts on how that might mirror the the eventual decision to replace Coach K?
3: Well, the Coach K decision will be a big decision, obviously. Um, I think that it will be made by the athletic director. And, and clearly, Kevin White is stepping down at the end of this uh, academic year so. I suspect it will be made by his successor, but given its importance, I suspect that the athletic director will uh, let the president of the university know about it. I do not expect it will be done the same way as the new athletic director is uh, being uh, selected. As you know, a committee has been formed, headed by one of my predecessors, as Duke board chair, uh, to, to oversee the selection of an athletic director. I don't think that will probably happen. I think the athletic director, in consultation, no doubt, with coach K and, and, uh, and others will, will make the decision. And one more question about, about Duke basketball, just as, as its
0: own program, you've professed that, that you really admire Zion Williamson as a player. Are there any other favorite players that you've had come through Duke? I also know that you recently appeared on JJ Reddick's podcast and, and you had some nice words for him as well.
3: Well, as I say, I'm not probably, uh, the most religious person in the world, but I, you know, Zion Williamson did convert me to becoming a Zionist and, um, I do admire his, uh, capabilities. Uh, clearly he was spectacular in his one year at Duke. Um, Grant Hill is somebody that I know reasonably well. his mother serves on the Duke board with me. She's on the Carlisle board served on the Kenny center board with me. And I've talked to Grant many times over the years and know him reasonably well. I think Christian Leitner was obviously a spectacular college player for Duke. Um, Bobby Hurley, among others, uh, Danny Ferry. There's a whole list of people that I admire and think have done terrific jobs. And I particularly admire Grant Hill because not only did was he a college All-American, but also an All-Pro. He's in the Basketball Hall of Fame. I went to the induction ceremony. He's also somebody that has a college degree. He's a leading sportscaster. And as you now know, he's going to help select the next two Olympic basketball teams, among other things. So he's a real role model. And uh, as a person who someday may wind up being chairman of the board at Duke, you never know.
2: David, I want to shift gears to the philanthropy that you've done, uh, not just for Duke, but elsewhere uh, in, the, in this country, especially right here in Washington, D.C. But you mentioned before that you kind of wanted to get out and do your own thing and then eventually came back to uh, become involved in university development about 20 years ago. What motivated you to, at that time, decide to give so much time and money to Duke?
3: Well, most people, I think, feel um, a special allegiance to their college. Obviously, some people do not like their college experience, and some people want nothing to do with their college. But as a general rule of thumb, most people feel they came of age in college, and most people look back reasonably favorably on their college experience. So when I became successful in the business world, I was confronted with the issue that many other financially successful people have. What do you do with the money? You give it all to your children and say, uh, be spoiled and uh, do whatever you want with the money and, or something like that. I don't think that was a good idea. You buy a lot of homes and artwork and yachts and planes and just say, look how rich I am. That wasn't really my style either. So I thought the best thing to do is to give the money away to useful causes and do it while I'm alive so I can see the benefit of it. And so I picked places that I've been involved with and that were very helpful for me. Duke gave me a scholarship when I could use a scholarship when I was very young and didn't have much money. And so I thought I owed Duke a fair bit. And so I wanted to repay that to to the extent that I could by getting involved with Duke financially, but also by serving uh, ultimately on the board and so forth.
2: And you mentioned as as a member of the board of trustees, you uh, and as the chairman, you helped make some major strategic decisions for Duke, like hiring the current president, Vincent Price, overseeing Duke Forward, a very successful fundraising campaign. How does the basketball program and, and just the athletic department in general fit into the broader university decision-making?
3: Duke University is unique in that there are very few universities that try to have first-class, world-class athletics and first-class, world-class academics. It's not easy to do. Uh, there are many uh, very good basketball and football schools where academics is not that important. And there are um, uh, many great academic schools where athletics is not that important. Duke is like Stanford. And I would say there are a few other schools like this, which try to have world-class academics and world-class athletics. It's not easy to do. Uh, Duke has done quite well in many sports, not just basketball. But I think when you take a look at it, the amount of money that it costs Duke to do this is not all that great. Uh, I suspect that the subsidy is, I don't know exactly what the current numbers are, but when I was the chair of the board, uh, the revenue of the uh, the, the, reven- the revenue cost or the cost of the athletic program was something like 60 or 70 million dollars a year. And Duke was then the university was subsidizing it to about 14 million dollars a year. In other words, the revenue from the rest of the, of, uh, the athletic programs, the sponsorships and ticket sales and so forth, uh, m- almost completely paid for the athletic program. So it wasn't like Duke was subsidizing it by a large amount. In fact, the Ivy League schools were much more. Uh, involved in subsidizing their athletic programs, and Duke was. Um, if you were to create a new university today, de novo, would you create a university with athletics as important as it is to Duke? You know, you can debate that. Uh, Stanford has the same debate, I suspect, as well. But given the history that Duke has had and success, certainly in basketball, but in other so-called Olympic sports and with other uh, kinds of things we've done over the years, I think that Duke, it's a very important part of Duke's DNA. And I think if basketball were to be de-emphasized or athletics de-emphasized, Duke would be a different university. Obviously, the Ivy League schools have a different approach to it, and they do quite well in academics, but I think it's a different environment than, than Duke. So I think the alumni base is quite happy with uh, the current mix of athletics and academics. Uh, clearly, they would always like us to win more basketball games and more football games, but I think it's a pretty good balance that we have between academics and athletics in a, in, in, at Duke right now.
2: And as Sam mentioned at the top, you know, your philanthropic efforts is not just Duke. You know, I can, you know, as a D.C. resident, I don't have to walk very far to see several places and projects or artifacts that you have graciously donated your time or, or money towards. How do you prioritize all of these different efforts that you clearly have such an interest in?
3: Well, I, a lot of what I've done in Washington is what I call patriotic philanthropy to give back to Washington, to remind people the history and heritage of our country, the good and the bad, and therefore I got involved by either giving financial support to rehabilitating certain monuments, memorials, or serving on the board of various organizations. So for the last uh, dozen years, I've been the chairman of the board of the Kennedy Center, which is Performing Arts Center here. I recently uh, stepped down from being the chairman of of the Smithsonian. I did that for a number of years. I am still chair of the Library of Congress board. I'm on the National Gallery of Art board and a number of other organizations in Washington. So I enjoy doing this. And I think uh, philanthropy is an ancient Greek word that really means loving humanity. It doesn't mean just rich people writing checks. So my view, if you give your time, your energy, and your ideas, that's also very valuable. And so I try to do that as well. And um, I've been very pleased with it. And in the end, what are you gonna do with the money? And what are you gonna do with your time? So I think uh, if you just be buried with all your money and have a big bank account and build a, a, a pyramid to yourself, I'm not sure that's the best way to use money and the best way to live your life. I think everybody should say, what am I doing on the face of the earth? How did I get here? What am I doing? What's my purpose? And I think people should come to the conclusion that in the end, you're trying to help other people. And that's the most satisfying thing in life you can do. Help other people. And if you do that, I think you'll have a more enjoyable life. And so I discovered that principle not too long ago, and I'm happily involved in doing it. My biggest concern is I'm not going to live forever, so I've got to rush to get what I want to get done as soon as possible, get it done now.
1: David, that's a beautiful philosophy. I, I just want to turn our conversation for a moment to college athletics in general um, and, and some big issues that, that it is facing that's changing um, uh, literally in these very moments Uh, that we're going through right now, we keep hearing that the NCAA is going to give opportunities to students to benefit from their own brands. And I'm talking about being able to market their name, image, and likeness here. And I'm just wondering how you personally feel about that change coming to college athletics. And as a prominent university and alumni leader, how do you think those changes will affect the way Duke interacts with their athletes?
3: Again, I don't speak for Duke at this point. I'm not on the board. And uh, I only speak for myself. I would say that it seems inevitable that we're heading in that direction. Uh, And I suspect the direction will go further than just uh, letting people benefit from their images. If 10 years or 20 years from today, um, athletes in major college sports are not compensated by more than just getting compensation for their images, I would be surprised. As you know, a former Duke basketball player, uh, deceased now, Dick DeVinzio, led an effort to have college athletes be compensated while they're in college. Now, at the time, people thought he was way out of uh, line in terms of what was good for Duke or college basketball. Um, Today, I would say many of his thoughts are probably more consistent with what many other people think. And I wouldn't be surprised if at some point you do some of those kind of things, which is to compensate people, whether they get the compensation while they're in college or whether they get it while they they graduate or when they leave, I don't know. But I suspect you're moving in some direction uh, along those lines. And I also think that um, you also are moving in a direction where uh, many very good talented athletes will just not go to college. You know, they'll go into the G League and, uh, and, and NBA and so forth. I, I don't want to say that's a terrible thing uh, for certain people. I do think that people should recognize that college is a thing, is a place where you go to mature, to learn, to become uh, ready to be in a full adult. And it's not just to learn how to make money. And so I do think that people don't go to college, don't have the full benefit of being a full human being in some respect. You can obviously drop out of college like Mark Zuckerberg or Bill Gates and do quite well. But the odds are that if you get a college education and you are uh, an educated person, you'll enjoy life much more than if you don't. Uh, Sadly, in my view, there are relatively few players in the NBA now who have college degrees. Now they're making lots of money and maybe they're very happy with their lives. But I do think their lives would be fuller if at some point after their playing career is over, perhaps, or do something like uh, getting a part time college education or getting some more out of life than just making money and being a basketball player. Though That's a very um, good thing for them to do. I just think that education is a a great thing for everybody. And I'm, I'm sad that we've now reached the point where people only look at college as being a way to make money.
1: Uh, your answer, I think, spills into what my next question is going to be, but I'm going to ask it anyway. You know, over the last decade, Duke has become a, an increasingly popular destination for basketball players who are looking to just spend one, maybe, but probably just one year in college. And Coach K has said, you know, this change happened organically and he's still recruiting the same kind of student athletes. It's just that the environment has made it, you know, so that they don't stay in school. Can I, I, I think I already know your answer from what you were just saying. How do you feel about these changes? And you know, would you prefer if the NCAA and the NBA
3: dealt with it differently? Obviously it's a complicated question because you can't say to young uh, men, um, "Look, you don't have the right to earn your living the way you want to earn it um, until you get a college degree." Um, you know, we don't say that about other people in entrepreneurial ventures. People drop out of college all the time or don't go to college. they start entrepreneurial ventures. And they're not involved in athletics, and they do quite well. And life goes on. So I would say, um, I Coach K, as you all know, because you know much more about Duke basketball than I do. Um, he used to have a rule that unless everybody on the team graduated, he wouldn't put the banner up on the uh, Cameron Indoor. Um, he had to change that when he started getting ones and duns and twos and duns. And he wasn't happy about it, but he recognized life had changed and the world had to move forward in the way it was moving forward. Um, I suspect um, that, you know, at some point we'll have a situation where people who are ones and dones uh, will find some way of getting a college education. I think society should encourage them to do so. As we all know, when you drop out of college after three years, let's say Michael Jordan, I didn't finish his senior year. And a number of other people at Duke did not finish their senior year. Elton Brand left after a sophomore year. They had spectacular pro careers. Um, I think when you graduate, when you leave after three years, there's a reasonably good chance you'll come back and get a college degree at some point. Leave after two years, modest chance, but probably. If you leave after one year, I think the chance of those people going back and getting a college degree is really, really small. I haven't seen the statistics but I'd be very surprised if the ones and dones have gone back and gotten college degrees part time or after they finished their college, college career, uh, college, their professional career. The thing that I think people should focus on is this. Most people that go into the NBA are not Michael Jordan. Uh, they're not uh, uh, people um, like uh, Zion Williamson. They are people that have an average of about three years in the NBA, three to four years. And then after three or four years, they're 25, 26 years old. They're out of the NBA. What are they going to do? Well, they're going to maybe be a college basketball coach, a high school basketball coach, nothing wrong with that. But they're not going to have the income that they once thought they were going to have. I also uh, sometimes regret seeing people who go into the NBA draft thinking they're going to be a lottery pick. And then they find out that they're picked on the second round or they're not picked at all. And as you all know, the chance of your um, being an NBA player, if you're not picked at all, is very, very small. And even getting on the second round, uh, it's pretty the minimis. So in terms of being a college player, so I mean, a best, a professional basketball player. So I, I wish, wish that there was a better way to educate some of these young players that they're not going to make uh, a fortune being an NBA star. They just are a limited number of NBA players that are going to make large sums of money. But anyway, it's hard to tell 19 and 20-year-olds what to do. And also, the basketball world has changed. In the old days, um, people came to college and they played basketball for four years. Lou Alcindor did. Um, Bill Walton did. A lot of the great players, they played four years. Nothing wrong with that, I think. And they did a good job and they ultimately had good pro careers as well. But they actually lived in the dorms. You now, maybe they had some special benefits as a living in a dorm. Maybe they lived off campus. Now, what you find to some extent is the ones and dons are the meal ticket for the family to a greater extent than before, and so the families sometimes move to the uh, to the uh, city where their, their son is going to play basketball, and the, the son really lives at home. And there's nothing wrong with living at home with your parents, and, and you you have uh, you know home cooking and so forth. It doesn't you know necessarily give the coach as much influence over the, the the player as before when he's living at home. And then the family just, you know, as soon as the player uh, finishes uh, the N C A tournament, he drops out of college. Um, I wish it were the case that people would come to Duke or other places. And if they're one and done, at least finish the academic year, go to classes and try to you know, get academic credit. But I realize that that may be difficult to do. Um, so um, it is interesting. I'm not sure there's any other any other sport where people are basically going to college just for one year and dropping out. Um, even football, you tend to spend two or three years uh, in, in playing NCAA football before you go to, go to the pros. So it's a unique phenomenon, but, you know, I, I don't think I don't want to be like the person who's the, the little Dutch boy with the finger in the dike saying, no, hold back the, the, the dam because I want to stop the world from moving forward. The world's moved in this direction and it's obviously worked well for some people. Take Zion Williamson. I admire him for willing to play at Duke after he was injured. Remember, after the injury, there was a lot of pressure on him to say uh, to not go back and play because he could have gotten hurt. And then, you know, the enormous amount of money he was going to make was gone. Um, But he came back and he played. And I I, I admire him for that. I hope someday he'll come back and get a college degree. But I don't know that he you know, that's in his plans. I know I just don't know.
1: I have to tell you, David, if I could appoint someone the czar of college basketball or all of basketball, Based on what you're saying, I wish you could be it. (laughs) But uh, but unfortunately, such a position does not exist. And I know you're very busy with other things. We're going to wrap things up now the way we wrap up virtually every interview we do here on the DBR podcast, which is by asking you to give us a good story about Coach K. Usually we're asking a player and they tell us some story about, you know, Coach K motivating them in the locker room. But you obviously have a very different relationship with him. Give me your best, your funniest, your most interesting Coach K story.
3: Well, I would say Coach K is uh, a person who um, doesn't like to tell people this, but when I was the chair of the board, we won a national championship in 2015. And I, I've been telling people ever since then that, that we won that because I was sending in the plays from the sidelines. And they were hand signals. And I was sending <laughs> in. Coach K was getting those signals. And I don't know if it was legal to do that or not. I know you're not supposed to coach from the sidelines in tennis, but Coach K said he needed my help. And so I was sending in the hand signals and he was doing what I was saying. So, you know, I got a, uh, a, a ring for the championship. I have that ring. It, it's, you know, weighs about three pounds. And then I went to the white house ceremony that we had. Um, and I think that that was really because coach K knew that if, without my hand signals coming in, he wouldn't have been able to win that game. I said, put Grayson Allen in and he didn't want to put Grayson Allen in, but uh, he did. And uh, we won the championship. So I, uh, you know, that was, uh, you know, I think Coach K is very nice not to have to, not to, to um, you know, uh, you know, have to admit it, but um, he, he does recognize privately that it was up to me. Uh, and I was the one who really made the, the key plays that enabled him to win that last national championship. But I don't mind his not bragging about it that much. And I, I, don't, I don't mind his not saying, you know, Rubenstein was the one who made it possible for me to win that championship. That's okay.
1: That, that that's a good one. I'm not sure that's real, but that's a great story. Thank you very much, sir.
3: My pleasure.
0: David, thank you for for joining us today on the Duke Basketball Report podcast. I think this was this was a fun conversation about about your career and and about your relationship with Duke. So uh, appreciate you taking the time with us.
3: Thanks a lot. Good luck to you guys.
0: So thank you again to David Rubenstein for joining us on the Duke basketball report podcast, guys, let's do a quick reaction to that and sort of get your, your takes on, on that conversation. I think normally when we do interviews on the show, we're we're talking to people who played on the basketball team, works for the basketball team, are basketball writers in some way, but there are Duke alums out there that are paying attention to the basketball team who are, who are not basketball alumni, who are not basketball players. Like we, like we were not. So it was uh, it was pretty cool to have David on. Jason, I'll come to you first. What was a uh, what, what was
1: a, a good nugget that that you got from David in that interview? I I loved what he said about uh being a philanthropist and that it means more than just acting with your money. I think that's uh just in, incredible advice to all of us. It's not it's not about writing a check and then going, "Okay, washing my hands of it. I've done my job." Um getting involved in organizations, getting involved in society uh is is part of our obligation as members of society. And, and I hope everyone, I hope everyone out there heard that because essentially what he's saying is that it's not only about your money, that giving with your time, giving with your thought, and, and, and other contributions to, to these important agencies, these important folks who are trying to help better what we are as a, as a people is a worthwhile endeavor. It's part of being a member of society. And I'm just, I'm so glad he he said it way more eloquently than I can. Um, But that's something I believe in very firmly, and I'm glad he was talking about it as well. And and goes to show
0: that the changes that we see around us are are made by the people who make them, right? They are not. There is no change that is that is sort of inherent. Amen. Yeah. Nothing. Nothing happens just because that is the march of history. It's it's because people give their time and effort to to making changes happen. And and it (laughs) reminds me, and it is something that I wanted to bring up earlier. That one of the reasons that I wanted us to talk to David Rubenstein today is that. Not only is he a prominent Duke alum and, and someone who is is on TV and, and on the internet all the time speaking with interesting world leaders, I, I recommend folks check out his YouTube page of all the all the cool interviews that he's done with with CEOs and with politicians, athletes, all kinds of people. But and with Coach K and with Coach K. But if you open, I, I've always I've long said that David Rubenstein has one of my favorite Wikipedia pages uh, that that exists on the internet because you can look through. It's not just about his success because I think there are a lot of successful people, people who have started companies, who have made a lot of money, who've, who've made a lot of change on the world and, and, and done things that, that have sort of shaped the course of human history. But looking at the, the list of, of things that he has been philanthropically involved in, and, and he talked a little bit about Washington, D.C. And, and all the various institutions, there's a lot of government institutions that he's been involved in even when he hasn't been necessarily like an employee of the federal government, but working with the Smithsonian, working with the National Archives, working with all kinds of organizations that he believes in and he thinks are important. So um, check out his Wikipedia page. And 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 I encourage folks to to read and, and watch more of, of what David Rubenstein is doing, because there's a lot out there. And if you think that you are busy, there is always more that you could be doing. Donald, I want to get your impression. You're a D.C. resident, and I think you were excited about, about being able to talk about DC with with David. So, what was your takeaway from that interview?
2: His humility. I mean, above everything, right? Like, this dude had like like I said, I can literally walk out of my apartment and walk you know a mile in any direction and come up upon something that David Rubenstein has affected, whether through his money or through his time or through something else. Uh, the Kennedy Center is just down the road for me. He, I mean, when we had an earthquake back in twenty eleven, Congress was fighting on who who would fix. The cracks that were in the Washington Monument, he said, here's $10 million. Just go fix it. Like he's that type of guy. And we we got the humility side of him because he talked about, yeah, giving time and giving money is cool, but you know, what? Is, you know, you want to do something with your life. And he's been doing a lot, not just at Duke, but here in DC. I, I do I, I do regret that we didn't get to ask him about what it what was going through his mind when he tried to buy the rules of basketball. Uh, which if you remember the old 30 for 30 about the rules of basketball. Kansas oh, was trying to buy I it for
3: the right.
2: Fog Allen Fieldhouse. And they were like, there's some anonymous donor who's trying to outbid you. And he's David Rubenstein, just like, I thought it would be pretty cool for Cameron Indoor Stadium. So uh, I, I regret we didn't get to ask about that. But just really overall, the, the philanthropy, the humility, and, and just his his worldview on a lot of things. He brought up his answers to Jason's questions about NLI and, and that sort of thing. Leads me to some questions that I may have uh, for a couple of guests we are hoping to secure down the road, but it is definitely the conversation with him is just one that has left me thinking. And I think that's part of the the idea of interviewing a guy like David Rubenstein. You leave with more questions about yourself and just about how you can apply what he said to the world.
0: Another thing that that occurs to me when, when he was talking about the difference between Duke and, and some other schools, and this is something certainly that we wanted to talk about with him, is also looking at kind of who the, the influential people on campus are and the way that they leave their mark. One of the things, if you walk around Duke's campus today and you look closely, you will find David's name in a, in a number of places. He's, his name is in the library. His name is on one of the buildings of the public policy school. His name is on the new art center, which when I was in school recently was one of my favorite new places to, to see on campus. It's a very cool facility that is in a place that where there used to be sort of not much at all, no reason for for students to get off at that bus stop, although it is across from the National Museum of Art. And what I appreciate about the work that he's done on campus is that it has enhanced, but not fundamentally like, you know, made the the campus something that it is not. And, And he's sort of aware of the 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 way the school kind of functions and is able to to put a lot of effort towards making it better, but not making it in his own image. It is not, it is not now and and nor do I think it will become Rubenstein University, nor nor should it. I think that there's a that there's an
2: an importance to that legacy that he is excited to to support. Yeah. And the one thing that also struck me is he mentioned, like, you know, I want to give money to things that I can see the tangible benefits of it while I'm still alive. And for all of us, right, like Jason graduated in the 90s. Uh, I graduated in the early 2000s, Sam in the 2010s, 80s. -hmm. I was oh, you're in the '80s. You're in the '89, okay. baby. I heard. Class I heard 89. Donald say it, and I wasn't going to correct him.
1: <laughs> Class, I was 89.
2: trying to make you younger, but you know, okay, '89. <laughs> but the the point is this, right? the The Durham that Jason went to school in is not the Durham that exists now. The, the The Durham that I went to school in, or Sam went to school in, and even the Duke that we all went to school in is not the Duke that exists today. So, just the tangible benefit of us being able as alums to go back and and see these new. Additions. We really have a lot to, uh, to compliment David Rubenstein for, but really in the last like five or six years, under his leadership, Duke has become a much more beautiful place than it even was back when we decided to go there. So, uh, really, just again, that humility where he's just kind of saying, Yeah, I'm just giving money to stuff and, and it's pretty cool. No, these things are really cool that he's doing. And some of the things that he has invested his time and money in have really benefited not just us as alums, but the future of Duke University.
0: So thank you again to David Rubenstein for joining us on the Duke basketball report podcast today. Before we go, Jason, I know that you've got a preview of the next episode, episode three of return to glory coming up. What can folks expect on that Friday drop?
1: So everyone on the team, you're going to hear from the entire 2001 team about how much, they hate the Maryland Terrapins. <laughs> so, it, any respect. Yes. So that is, so that we're is all catnip. agreement. That is catnip for Duke fans. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, but wait. But I was going to say, at the great, the thing that I love the most, I think, about this next episode is there's a story from Carlos Boozer about what happened when the Duke Blue Devils tried to get a meal after a key game against Maryland, and it's a, it's a, I, I was, I was surprised by the story. Duke, Duke was unable to get a meal in Maryland after they beat the Terrapins.
2: I heard about this when I was in school. So this is not, I mean, this is not something that like was national news or anything, but definitely the players were pissed when they got back to campus because of this. So I'm really looking forward to this episode because I really look forward to how they interpret that story. So we
0: will look forward to Jason's next episode of Return to Glory, which is going to be coming Friday morning. It is now Wednesday as we speak. I believe we're, we're going to get this out on Wednesday. Of course, as, as we've been saying, if there is any news in the Duke program, we'll get right back on to talk about it and, and give our quick reactions. We still have the survey open, tinyurl.com slash dbr podcast survey. If you haven't gotten a chance, we we have had a lot of great responses in there, and I'm working on on collating the the findings and sharing some of that with you, the listeners, because I think there's there's some fun stuff that we found. One thing that I regret from the way that I they set up one of the questions is that I asked everybody to name their favorite other podcasts, and I did not make it an easily sortable uh, list of of names. So I'm working on that, and I will share when we when I get this done. I will share the favorite podcast of listeners of the Duke Basketball Report podcast, other than the Duke basketball report podcast, of course, because I'm, because I'm sure that we are your favorite show. Uh, And and if it's not us, it's something else. You'll find out what that is. You'll find out many more things from us in the coming weeks. We have, as, as we said earlier, some great interviews that are are coming together in the next few weeks. So look out for that. Look out for us. Stay subscribed. Send us emails, dbrpodcast at gmail.com. I think that that is it for today. So for Donald Wine and for Jason Evans, I am Sam Klein. This has been episode 306 of the Duke Basketball Report podcast. Thanks again to David Rubenstein for joining us. We will talk to you again soon. And until then, Duke Band, take us home. Um, David, thank you for joining us.
3: Sure. We're not. You, <clears throat> yes. This, this, your podcast is only about Duke basketball.
0: Yes. Isn't that crazy? Are
3: there are <laughs> enough, enough people listening to Duke basketball podcasts to um, make it. So it, it was, You'd be well, shocked. <laughs> it was started. We
0: started it as a passion project. So, yes, the number of listeners required, required is zero. Right. Um, um, we just like easy. doing it.
3: Okay. okay. And so you do it how frequently?
0: Uh, normally like once or like twice a week during the season. And then during the off season, which honestly actually starts in may as opposed to right after the season ends. Cause there's so much like transfers and, you know, off season stuff. I'd say we're recording twice a week through April. And then in may we go down to like maybe a little less than once a week, depending on the news.
3: I and mean, then you have, I mean, how many people can, I mean, are that many people I care about Duke basketball. I do not know. Okay.
0: Uh, i'm i'm surprised you don't think there there are enough of them uh i would say we have <laughs> we have thousands of listeners uh-huh. uh but we would like i obviously we would like to have more you could always you could always use more but um
3: okay but i mean you do this it's not a for-profit thing because you're not a you don't get a sponsor we right. make
0: a we we make a very small amount on sponsorship i oh, yeah. it is okay. it is not sustaining any of us okay um, it buys us a dinner it's, it's more fun <laughs>